Hello, and welcome back to the second episode of the Gods Among Men podcast. Last week, I talked about a general audit of my belief system to figure out where I currently am before I get into reading the Book of Mormon. Now, the Book of Mormon, uh, in in its current published form, starts with an introduction with uh, the testimony of Joseph Smith and then witnesses who saw the golden plates that he had. But with the reader's edition that I'm using right now, uh, it doesn't have that. It just gets right into First Nephi, which is the first book in the Book of Mormon. Uh, before I get into that, though, and my thoughts on what I read, um, what, what I did read was First Nephi 1 to 9. It's, it's not a lot, but I do have a lot to say. I want to talk generally about how I'm doing, because I think that's going to inform how I see everything in this. So for me personally, the last week has been really hard. There have been a lot of things that have kind of hit all at once over and over and over. Um, so I've been in a really hard place lately. Um, and, and that can be difficult in terms of how I feel. And it can also be a catalyst for having a lot of emotional change and belief change. And that, that comes with two sides to it. The first side is that it's probably going to make me more open to different ideas or finding comfort in places that I wouldn't. Um, but that's both an upside and a downside because I'll also kind of be more inclined to find comfort in things that wouldn't normally be appealing to me. Um, now, I've been aware of that all week. I haven't really noticed that. Um, but, but I do think it's something to make note of just to be fully transparent in my process with this, because like I said last time, I really do genuinely want to be as transparent with this as I can and be as genuine as I possibly can. The second thing I'd like to talk about is um, how I've been doing with my study of the Book of Mormon. I, I feel like I've been doing pretty good. As I mentioned, I went through nine chapters this week with a lot of notes and really just digging into it and trying to get as much as I can out of this. Um, I, I think that there's a lot to break down, both with the, um, the history of the time that this is uh, purported to be taking place, as well as how it could correlate to the history of when Joseph Smith was translating this, the history of some of the names. Um, there's just a lot of different things going on in here. And so, so I've been reading every single day, taking notes. I've also been praying every day. Um, I, I haven't really felt much doing that. I don't know if that's going to change, um, but I've been trying to be sincere about it. And if nothing else, it's nice to take that time to calm my mind. So it, it's weird to me. It's not something I'm really noticing a ton of benefit from right now, but it's something that I'm definitely willing to keep doing, especially if it's supposed to make this a... Uh, better inquiry process where I can have a more authentic and genuine result at the end. So yeah, I've been praying every single day. I've been reading every single day. And that kind of brings me to where I am today. Um, so like I said, uh, this past week, I've gone through chapters one to nine, in addition to the title page of the Book of Mormon. Um, and then the title page, it, it's been changed a bit over the years. But it serves as like a mini introduction to anyone who picks up a Book of Mormon. And I believe it's been there since the very, very first edition. So this is going to be what people who picked it up back in, oh, was it 1830 that it was first published? I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, but around that time, uh, similar to what people then would be able to read. 
before I get into that, I, I do think it would be good to talk about the historical setting of Joseph Smith uh, as it relates to how he might interpret the things that he finds in the Book of Mormon, whether he's literally, literally translating them or whether he's receiving them through inspiration or coming up with him or coming up with them himself. I think all of these things are going to be relevant to how he saw the Book of Mormon and how people at the time saw it and then kind of what it can mean to us. And the main thing I want to focus on today is the difference between universalism and Protestant. Um, th these were two really big religious ideas at the time, and the main difference came down to what they believed about being saved for the afterlife. Universalism, as the name might imply, believed that everybody, regardless of how they acted, would be saved by Christ's atonement. Whereas Protestants believed that you had to actively take his name upon you and live well. And this really came into the limelight in the Smith family when uh, Joseph Smith's brother Alvin died. Um, Alvin was loved by the whole family, and I, I know it started a big concern for Joseph Smith's mother to make sure that everybody got baptized within the family, um, in, into the Protestant religion specifically. Joseph Smith Sr. was a lot more skeptical of that uh, because in his view, everybody was going to be saved regardless of whether or not they did any rituals or things like that. And while Joseph Smith had Joseph Smith Jr. had several siblings that did get baptized, he was a little less convinced. And um, the, I, I think it's going to be interesting to view how the Book of Mormon informs this uh, is informed by this context, or at least what I can say about it. Does it lean more toward a universalism approach or a Protestant approach or somewhere in between? Um, and a lot of analysts of the Book of Mormon or people who have written uh, biographies on Joseph Smith tend to view it as having somewhat of an in-between view, leaning a bit toward anti-universalism. Uh, anyway, I, I just think that's an important and interesting context to keep in mind. Also, as we go into uh, the Book of Nephi, which is the first part of this, I think it's important to recognize that this wasn't originally what we were going to have. We were originally going to have this be the plates of Lehi, which is Nephi's dad. We'll get into that in a little bit. And there were 116 pages of translation in the book of Nephi or in the book of Lehi at first. And one of Joseph Smith's associates, the one who was going to be financing it, Martin Harris, was trying to convince his wife that financing the Book of Mormon was a good decision. He begged and begged Joseph Smith to take the 116 pages of translation to show her. Uh, after a lot of asking, Joseph Smith finally did. And uh, the, the pages were lost. Whether or not Lucy Harris, uh, I think that's her name, Martin Harris's wife, um, took the pages and hid them or just something else happened to them, it's not totally clear. But Joseph Smith was super worried by this. What he said is he, he was worried that someone was waiting for him to retranslate those same pages, and then they would take what he already translated and amend those uh, to make it look like he was translating it differently. Whereas I would imagine what other people at that time who were uh, skeptical of Joseph would say is, we're not going to change anything. We just believe that you're going to translate something differently. So it was kind of like a standoff between uh, critics of Joseph Smith, people who were skeptical, and Joseph Smith. But after a lot of praying, uh, Joseph Smith received revelation that, were, that they were also uh, the, the plates of Nephi, 
which was Lehi's son. So it was going to basically be the same story, but more abridged and from a different perspective, missing some details here or there. And Nephi actually mentions this uh, in his book several times, actually, even in just the first nine chapters. I think I counted probably four or five times that he emphasizes that the details are going to be different than his father's plates. Regardless, yeah, this, this kind of sets the stage for the modern day history of the Book of Mormon, what was going on at the time when it was written. And now I think it would be good to get into the Book of Mormon itself. So starting with the title page, something that there's a few things on here that are interesting, but the main thing is that it introduces two groups of people, the Nephites and the Lamanites. And you're going to see their, uh, their forefathers in the first few chapters of the Book of Mormon. The Nephites are descendants of a man named Nephi, and they're generally, for most of the Book of Mormon, the good guys. Um, and then there's the Lamanites, who are the descendants of a man named Laman. And for most of the Book of Mormon, they're kind of the bad guys. Um, it also talks about how the Book of Mormon was delivered to Joseph Smith by the hand of Moroni. And it talks about how there, there's a gathering of the House of Israel and that these are the words of God. Uh, that, that's kind of the gist of it. Um, Joseph Smith also emphasized when talking about this that this was a literal translation, so not just inspiration off of a general idea, but a literal translation taken from the very last leaf of the golden plates on the left-hand side. Um, and so that takes us to the first book of Nephi. I'm really excited to finally be getting into this. Um, before we get into the first content, though, there's a chapter heading at the very beginning that introduces us to some key characters that are going to come up time and time again in the first and second book of Nephi, um, as well as later on in the Book of Mormon through their uh, lineage. So I'm going to... It's hard to find a balance of approaching this from a religious perspective and a literary, or literary perspective, where I'm both analyzing what's in this book just in its self-contained context, but also being curious about like what was going on, what were the origin, origins of these names, the origins of these people. And I, I think the approach I generally feel best about is a balance of both. I, I want to be genuine to consuming this book in however is the most engaging to me. And so there's going to be times where I go into things that stick out to me as strange or that stick out to me as um, r really meaningful. But that's not necessarily meaning I'm trying to prove or disprove anything. I'm trying to be a blank slate while I'm reading this. Um, but part of being genuine about my search for truth is voicing things when I do see them. And so when we're going through the names of these characters, I'm going to be mentioning what they could possibly mean, where they might come from, and um, where either their like Hebraic history is or where Joseph Smith potentially could have found these names. Um, and, and I think that there's really interesting stories for each of those. And I, I would guess that members and non-members alike are going to learn something here. So first off, we've got our protagonist, so to speak, Nephi. Uh, I'm not sure if he was originally going to be the main character when written in the plates of Lehi. I would imagine not. Um, but yeah, so... Nephi, he's the main character. He's, I think, the youngest son of Lehi. 
And opposed to many of his brothers, he's considered to be the righteous one, the one who's a ruler over them, uh, the one who sets the example, who has faith. And uh, Latter-day Saint scholars tend to put the name Nephi from the Hebrew word nefesh, which means the complete life of a being, uh, being being like a living being, like an animal or a human, uh, but generally this idea of a complete life. <clears throat> the name Nephi can also be taken from the Apocrypha, which are a collection of books uh, that didn't end up making it into modern versions of the Bible, but were said to have been in previous versions of it. A lot of people claimed that they were uninspired, either for like themes of magic or just weird stuff that didn't track with the themes and tone of the rest of the Bible, so it was removed. Some editions have it back in, and some, uh, some keep it out. <clears throat> but in the second book of Maccabees, in the Apocrypha, in the New King James translation, uh, there is, let's see, chapter 1, verse 36. It says, And Nehemiah called this thing, and Nehemiah called this thing Naphthar, which is, as much to say, a cleansing. But many men also call it Nephi. Um, and the, the, it's important to note that it's not always translated like that. For example, the translation of the Bible that I've been using and I really like is the New Revised Standard Version that's generally considered the most accurate translation of the original Greek for a lot of the Bible. Um, but it translates that same verse as... Nehemiah and his associates called this Nephthar, which means purification, but most people called it Naphtha. So how do you go from Nephi to Naphtha? Well, the reason is, in the language it was originally written in, they weren't using vowels. They were using a collection of consonants, and then the vowels were kind of implied. So it was written as NPR, but in some translations... Um, the P made an F sound, and the R ended up being turned into a Y sound. So that's N-F-Y, which is why some people translated it as Nephi, whereas um, N-P-R somehow turned into uh, Naphtha. I don't totally understand it, but I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> Another place that the name Nephi can be found, as well as Lehi, Laman, and Lemuel, is in a book published in 1807, so right after Joseph Smith was born, called A Key to the Classical Pronunciation of Greek, Latin, and Scripture Proper Names. Um, and on page 265, you have the name uh, Nephi. And then kind of leading into our uh, next section of names, on page 260, you have the names Lehi, Laman, and Lemuel. It's unclear if Joseph Smith would have access to this book. I don't think it's important one way or another to the truth of the Book of Mormon. I just think it's interesting to show like there's a precedent for these names one way or another. So Lehi, he shares his name with uh, the site where Samson fought off a thousand soldiers with the jawbone of a donkey. Um, and, and so it's the name Lehi is generally attributed to the meaning of jawbone these days. Uh, and like I said, it's also in that book of pronunciation, not too much outside of that. I don't find Jawbone to be a particularly symbolic or meaningful name. Next up, we've got, uh, Lehi's wife, Sariah. Sariah is a name that means princess of the Lord. There's also an alternate spelling of it. Um, S E R A I A H kind of spelled like Isaiah looking at it. Um, and that means God is ruler, um, in Hebrew. So just generally names of people praising God or being tied to the Lord. Um, Sarai is also the name of a forest girl from The Legend of Zelda, but something tells me that there's not a relationship to that. 
But now we start getting into some really interesting names, um, starting with Layman and Lemuel. Um, actually, we're going to go uh, Layman, Samuel, and Lemuel. So I didn't know this, but Layman and Lemuel and Samuel, none of those were particularly uncommon names, both historically, like in uh, Hebraic times. They all have roots there, which is why they're in that book that I mentioned, but also in the days of Joseph Smith. So layman can be taken as uh, like layman, L-A-Y-M-A-N, meaning someone who's not a member of the clergy or like an uh, like a regular person, essentially, compared to an in-group. But there's also someone closely tied to the Smith family called Layman Walters. It's spelled L-U-M-A-N, but it was pronounced as Layman and sometimes written as Layman, L-A-M-A-N. <clears throat> so Layman Walters was the son of a rich man who ended up studying in Paris and became super well-educated. Um, through his studying, he became a physician, so a doctor, but also an occultist or a magician which ties into what I mentioned last time, the Smith's background in treasure hunting and magic. Um, in the back half of the 1800s, he was discussed a lot uh, between different uh, critics. And something that was brought up and generally agreed on between them was that he had mastered animal magnetism or mesmerism. And I had no idea what these were. Um, after looking it up, animal magnetism, uh, th th that's not like he's Aquaman calling fish toward him. It's, it's basically just hypnosis. Um, he also had, in a, uh, he, had an, he had a warrant put out for his arrest for magic, palm reading, and conjuration. So like casting spells. But get this. So he was arrested, but not for any of those. What he was arrested for was the witchcraft of juggling. He had all of those things out on him, but what he ended up getting taken in for was juggling, and I just think that's pretty funny. The question is, what's their tie, or what's Layman's tie to the Smith family? Uh, he worked with Joseph Sr., so Joseph Smith's dad, Alvin, and Joseph Jr., so Joseph Smith, on treasure digging jobs, uh, and Layman used a seer stone to help find them. Together, they also worked with a man named Samuel, Samuel Lawrence, and he had a similar skill set as Layman. And between Layman and Samuel, one of them was theory to have been the one to write uh, the Smith family's magic parchment. So this magic parchment, it, I think there were three pages, and they were found on Hiram Smith when he died, and are generally considered an heirloom that was passed down among the Smiths. It's unclear on if Joseph Smith had these at any point. Um, it would seem likely if he was also close to Samuel and Layman, but nothing one way or another. But these... Uh, these parchments are really interesting. Uh, they contain uh, Christian sim symbols and occult symbols. And in, in modern usage, occult means like demonic. That's not how it was used then. Uh, magic wasn't necessarily viewed as an evil thing, um, maybe a strange thing, but not nearly as taboo as it is today and not necessarily associated with the, uh, the devil. So on these parchments, and you can look them up and see pictures yourself, there were uh, several symbols drawn, and it's widely speculated that these symbols were called laymans, um, which is a kind of pendant that was used in uh, magical ceremonies to try to focus energies to do a variety of things like uh, find treasure. So anyway, like I mentioned, uh, in addition to layman, there's also Samuel. So there's Samuel Lawrence, but Joseph Smith also had a younger brother named Samuel, 
uh, who is devout his entire life, and he was one of the witnesses of the Golden Plates. But you, you really don't need to go that deep to find out uh, roots of Samuel outside of Joseph Smith's life. It's a common name, but it's also a really famous figure in the Bible. I mean, he's got books in the Bible. Um, so Samuel was a prophet in the Bible who went around teaching people, preaching repentance, and giving people like individual device or individual advice. Um, yeah, so he's a prophet in the New Testament, but he's also mentioned in the Quran, which I think is interesting. His name means God has heard or the name of God. And then the last name we're going to break down is Lemuel. This was also a common name at the time of Joseph Smith. It means devotion to God, and it has its roots in Hebrew. So starting with a biblical context, uh, there was a Lemuel in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31. It talks about a king named Lemuel. Um, Joseph Smith also knew several Lemuels in his life that he didn't necessarily have the best relationship with. Um, so I imagine, uh, re regardless of whether or not Joseph made the Book of Mormon, like he wrote it, it's going to, I, I wonder if he ever connected the two. So there was Lemuel Spear. He was a man who was on a, a jury for a trial against Joseph Smith for uh, whether or not he was a charlatan, I believed. Uh, it was something to do with one of his treasure-seeking cases where the person who hired him was upset. So um, they, they tried him, and Lemuel Spear was on the jury. There was also Lemuel Lee, who was also involved in that trial, um, and he was one of the witnesses against Joseph. There was also Lemuel Durfee, um, and that was a man who ended up uh, wrestling the deed for Joseph's childhood home from the Smith's family. And then he, uh, he rented it back to them in 1829. So there's a lot of history for Laman, Lemuel, uh, Samuel, Lehi, Nephi, and Sariah, uh, really all throughout both Hebrew history and then also for several of them throughout the history of Joseph Smith. And that leads us finally into the first book. I, I don't think I have anything else to add before that to set the stage. Um, maybe I'll prove myself wrong. So this is happening around 597 BC, which is right around the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar II. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was a king who had just tried to invade Egypt a few years before, but it didn't end well for him. Um... So Nephi introduces himself, talks about his parents, and how he was taught all his days in the learning of his father. Um, and that's both spiritual learning, claiming he was uh, highly favored of the Lord and had a great knowledge of goodness and mysteries of God, but also academic learning. Uh, he mentions that he was learning in the—he he had the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians— and this is something that stuck out to me as strange. Why would a Jew from Jerusalem at a time where Egyptians were kind of attacking people and they were just attacked themselves, why would he be writing in Egyptian? Um, we get the answer later on in the Book of Mormon from Moroni, who clarifies this is something that they called Reformed Egyptian, and they wrote in it because there wasn't enough room to write in Hebrew. So this would suggest that um, they were writing in hieroglyphs. Which would make sense. Um, around this era in human history, Egyptian was in an era called Demotic Egyptian. Um, and that was just a simplified version of the script. But that was used generally for uh, legal documents. And for religious documents, they were still generally using hieroglyphs or a simplified version of hieroglyphs called hieratic. But it, it doesn't actually 
do us much good to speculate about what it looks like because we actually have a picture of what it looks like. Um, <clears throat> in uh, let, let me find my notes right here. So after Joseph Smith had published the Book of Mormon, he sent Martin Harris, the person who funded it, to get the translation verified. So what he did is he called Martin Harris over, went behind a sheet in the corner of the room, and wrote onto a piece of paper that he called characters. That was supposed to be a uh, direct copy of characters from the Book of Mormon. And you can Google that and look it up yourself. I think it's on the Wikipedia page for Reformed Egyptian. Um, but it's really interesting to look at. Um, Martin Harris took it into a nearby city and he showed it to a man named Charles Anton, who was a renowned classical scholar. Um, but before he did that, he showed it to someone else in town who said that they just, they didn't have the necessary tools to read it. They didn't have the education. So that's who sent him to Anton. Anyway, Martin Harris talks to Anton and, uh, Charles Anton takes a look and according to the story said by Joseph Smith, because there's a couple different versions of how this went down, Anton looked at it and he said it was a perfect, immaculate or translation. And it was just absolutely beautiful. It had clear roots in other languages. And he was so impressed with it that he wrote a certificate for authenticity on the spot. Martin Harris took it and started to leave when Charles Anton stopped him and asked, hold up, where did you get this? Martin Harris responds, well, it was a book given to me by an angel or given to Joseph Smith by an angel. Um, and after he said that, Charles Anton rushed him down, took it out of his hands, and tore it up, saying, angels don't exist. I'm only going to translate this if you bring the books to me. Uh, Martin Harris says, I, I can't do that. People can't see these plates. To which Anton replies, I cannot read a sealed book, which is a really specific phrase that we're going to get to in just a second. Uh, before we do, though, I want to mention that um, this is how Joseph Smith tells the story. Charles Anton tells it differently. He said that uh, Martin Harris approached him and he said he just didn't believe it and sent him away. There was no discussion of a certificate of, authentic or, uh, authenticity or anything like that. But that phrase, cannot read a sealed book, it actually goes back to a uh, verse in Isaiah, which according to Joseph Smith was a prophecy. Let me go ahead and read through it. I'm going to read both the New King James Version, which Joseph Smith had, but also the New Revised Standard Version, um, to kind of put it in more modern speech and have a more accurate translation to the Greek. So what Joseph Smith would have read in the New King James Version said um, in Isaiah 29, verse 11, And the vision of all this is become unto you as the words of a book, which is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And then in the New Revised Standard Version, it says, um, The vision of all this has become for you like the words of a sealed document. If it is given to those who cannot read with the command, or if it is given to those who cannot read with the command, read this, they'll say, We cannot, for it is sealed. And if it is given to those who cannot read, and you say, Read this, then they'll say, We cannot read. And so Joseph Smith was interpreting this as a literal sealed book. Uh, which the golden plates would qualify as, although there are a couple of other interpretations for it. Uh, how, how a lot of people believe Isaiah was using this was kind of lamenting the fact that he felt like his words were lost on everybody. The people who were spiritually open-minded weren't literate enough to know how to read it, and the people who were literate were so stuck in their ways that they couldn't open their spiritual minds. And so while this dive into revised Egyptian has been 
kind of weird and a bit concerning to me for the historicity of the Book of Mormon. This is actually where I'm taking one of my first spiritual takeaways from it that I think there's actual value in, which is um, what Isaiah could have been saying here, that if you're too concerned about your own interpretation of things, that you're not willing to look with your spiritual eyes or consider other things, or if you only consider the spiritual other things and don't give it a try academically, you're going to be closing yourself off to interpretations of the book that otherwise you would have missed. So I think it's saying you need to find a balance between spiritual and academic when you're looking at scripture. And that's something that I'm really trying to do here. Um, so yeah, that was my first takeaway from uh, the first book of Nephi, first chapter, only a few sentences in, and we already got that, uh, which is pretty great. Um, but yeah, so what what's actually happening here, though, in the first book of Nephi? Like I said, we're introduced to the family, um, but at this time, like I said, it's right before the siege of Jerusalem in uh, 597 BC. Um, it's also sometimes attributed to 587 BC, depending on what source you're looking at. And at this time, according to Nephi, there were a lot of prophets in Jerusalem saying that they all needed to repent or they would be destroyed, which, I mean, to be fair... Egypt was just attacked a few years ago. Of course, they're going to be worried about this. So I can totally understand like why there would be so many people uh, pushing to have people repent because they don't want to all die. Uh, Lehi's family, they were all concerned about this, especially Lehi. So he went and prayed to the Lord for guidance on behalf of all of his people. And he tried to do it with a sincere heart. And when he did, he was taken up into a vision where he saw a couple of different things. Um, there was a pillar of fire that appeared before him. And this pillar of fire was so radiant and so powerful that it caused him to quake and tremble. And as it cleared, he saw God sitting on his throne, surrounded by endless concourses of angel, or of angels. While this was happening, one person descended to him who was brighter than the noonday sun. And he gave him a book and said that Jerusalem was full of abominations and that it would be destroyed. And then after he saw this, Lehi came back to his senses and praised God for how glorious he was, and he rejoiced. Which, I mean, admittedly is a weird reaction to finding your homeland is about to be destroyed with all of the people in it. But also, I can, I can imagine, like, if you just got a direct vision and saw God and Jesus Christ, they would probably also be left with a good feeling. <clears throat> Excuse me. Something that I think is interesting, though, is the parallels that this has to uh, the first vision of Joseph Smith when he prayed to the Lord. And in the first account of how he told the first vision in uh, 1832, it wasn't uh, God and Jesus Christ that appeared to him. It was a pillar of fire that descended upon him. And in his first account, he crossed out the word fire and wrote light to clarify. But in later accounts, uh, he also said fire again. Um as this fire descended upon him, he had a vision and was filled with the spirit of God. He saw the Lord descend upon him whose brightness and glory defied all description. Um, they told him that the world was sinful and they turned away from the gospel. At least that's how they phrase it in uh, early accounts. Um, in, in later ones, they say that none of the churches were true. And then after this all happened, Joseph Smith was uh, filled with joy and rejoiced for days. Um <clears throat> In 1835, in one of his later accounts, he doesn't mention God or Christ, but he does mention a numerous concourse of angels, which is, again, similar to what Lehi saw. Um, 
And, and, and so I think it's, it's interesting to see the parallels here. Um, because if Joseph Smith was writing this, then he was definitely putting some of his own life into this book to try to find, I don't know, meaning in it. But if this is something that he was genuinely translating, I imagine his mind must have been blown and he must have felt like this was written just for him. Um, or maybe it's just evidence of how God appears to people. Um, and it's saying that God is the same now and forever. He appeared in a similar way then. He appeared in a similar way in Joseph Smith's time. Um, they both eventually uh, gave them a book. Uh, for Lehi, it was immediately. For uh, Joseph Smith, it was later on the Book of Mormon. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was an interesting comparison to be made there. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so this happens, and then Nephi goes on to clarify, this is all an abridgment of what my father wrote, so things might look a little bit different. Um, after that, Lehi goes on and he tells the Jewish people about what he saw and they mock him. They get angry at him and they try to kill him. But Lehi ends this or Nephi ends this chapter by talking about how the Lord delivered Lehi out of Jerusalem uh, in order to keep him safe uh, using the power of deliverance. And this sets up a theme that we're going to see coming up a lot, at least in the early parts of first Nephi which is the Lord not necessarily being a God of kindness and mercy, but like how I mentioned last time, different people see different things in the Lord. And here in first Nephi, it very much seems to be a Lord of power and deliverance. Um, and, and we're going to see that happen more and more um, as the book goes on. <laughs> so anyway, this brings us into chapter two. Uh, excuse me. In chapter two, the Lord appears to Lehi again, but this time in a dream and blesses Lehi for his obedience, which is another thing that we're going to see come up time and time again in this book as a theme is obedience and being blessed for listening to what the Lord says um, without murmuring or without complaining. <clears throat> in the same dream, he commands Lehi to take his family and leave into the wilderness, um, leaving everything behind. It implies here that Lehi had a lot of wealth, uh, gold and silver and precious things. Some people have speculated that maybe Lehi or Levi was a, not Levi, uh, Lehi was a trader, uh, like a person who trades, trades things, not someone who betrays their country, traitor. Um, and, and that's why he had so much riches, but also why his family knew Egyptian and in time that the Egyptian people were attacking others. Um, but anyway, commands Lehi to take his family and go off into the wilderness, leave everything behind. And again, Lehi obeys immediately, and he takes his family, his provisions, so like food to stay alive, and a tent. And so the tent is kind of memed on in church culture, um, because there's a, uh, a whole verse that's just, my father dwelt in a tent, and they just mentioned the tent again and again and again. And so some people laugh at that, but I mean, clearly it was meaningful to someone at some point. And if you look at how it's used, the tent is generally a place of reflection for Nephi's family and not just for uh, Lehi. Where whenever there's any kind of spiritual experience or something to reflect on, they go to this dedicated space, which is the tent. Um, and so that's just something I noticed is time and time again, they... Uh, they emphasize this importance of having a place that you can go to having a safe, comfortable place to reflect in quiet and in uh, solitude on spiritual experiences that you've had. And that's something that reminds me of something that's been really uh, beneficial in my own life for spiritual events, 
which is just taking time to sit by myself and think on it or meditate on it or journal. So that's actually a message I really do resonate with. Um, but after the tent, Lehi builds an altar to give thanks to the Lord. And then he talks to Laman and Lemuel, and he tells them kind of his vision for how he'd like them to become. He mentions that he wishes Laman could be more like a river flowing into the fountain of righteousness. Um, and that Lemuel should be like a valley, steadfast and immovable in his devotion to the Lord. Um, and I think this is really interesting. It's highlighting again how everyone in the family kind of knows Laman and Lemuel. They're not on the path that the rest of the family wants them to be. And it's, it's very concerning to Lehi. Somehow this conversation of saying they should be like rivers and mountains doesn't work. And they keep on complaining. So Lehi, he preaches to them super hard, causing them to quake and shiver from the, the spirit of what he was saying. And then he goes to, uh, then he goes to his tent again. After hearing everything that Lehi has been saying, um, Nephi is a bit conflicted. His brothers are definitely complaining all the time, but he wants to believe in what his father is saying. So Nephi prays himself to God to know if things are true. And this reminds me of a theme in the Book of Mormon about praying to God to know something's true. I mean, that's Moroni's promise near the end of this book that inspired this whole podcast, uh, inspired this whole podcast that if you read his words, God's words, and pray about it, then he'll make it known to you that it's true. And that's exactly what happens here. Where Nephi prays, his heart is softened by the Lord, and then Nephi goes to speak to his brother Sam, and Sam believes him. Uh, but while Sam believes him and believes, uh, believes Lehi, Laman and Lemuel don't share the sentiment. Um, so Laman and Lemuel, they're still complaining. Nephi ends up receiving uh, a word, receiving words from the Lord, uh, blessing him. They, the Lord blesses him for his faith and for seeking diligently, having humility, uh, generally all along that line of obedience, like acting in faith, even if you don't know how things are going to work out, really trying to find things, seeking diligently. That's clearly something that's valued here. And then humility, like acknowledging that there's things you don't know and trying to find it. And that's all stuff that, while I don't know how much I rely on faith right now, I am trying to seek diligently and I'm trying to be humble and find things to learn, even if I am finding things that kind of make me uh, make me a little uneasy with the claim of this being historical. I am trying to keep a an open mind and, and stay humble. Um, and, and this kind of goes to the idea of the sealed book and how you can't be too focused one way or another in how you interpret things. Nephi is also promised that if he continues to keep the commandments of the Lord, that he'll prosper and be led to a promised land. Uh, that promised land is going to be choice above all the lands. And if his brothers, if his brothers rebel against Nephi, not the Lord, but Nephi, um, then they'll be cut off from the presence of the Lord and have a curse placed on them. Um, and that if Nephi's people keep the commandments of the Lord, then there'll be a ruler over his brothers. Um, and they'll have, uh, his brother's people will have no power over the people of Nephi unless they're also rebelling. And this is all kind of foreshadowing what we're going to see in later parts of the book. So I think it's really interesting. But that concludes chapter two, and we're getting right into chapter three. 
so far I'm seeing a lot of themes of the importance of obedience and faith and um, also in God being this powerful figure of deliverance. So what happens in chapter three? Chapter three is really interesting. It's something that we talked about a lot in my philosophy class, actually, in college. Um, Nephi goes to talk to his father in his tent, and Lehi tells Nephi that they've got to go back to Jerusalem, Nephi and his brothers, because they need to get the record of the Jews on the plates of brass. So Nephi and his brothers go to Jerusalem, and they go to find a man named Laban. And now Laban was a rich man who had the equivalent of the Torah, essentially. Five books of Moses is how they describe it. Uh, So the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, Laban is also a man in the Bible who was the brother of Rebekah, who married Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob, also known as Ishmael, or not Ishmael, Israel, who uh, fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes are going to come up a lot throughout this book. Um, So just keep an open mind toward that. So they were asked to go uh, go to Laban. Laban and Lemuel, as is in character for them right now, they murmured, said it's hard, they're not going to do it. But Le- uh, Nephi is blessed for not complaining, and it gets into that theme of obedience again, with Nephi saying a very famous phrase in Latter-day Saint culture, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, for I know that the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way that they may accomplish the things which he hath commanded them. Basically, I'm going to do whatever I feel like the Lord has told me to do because I know he's going to provide a way for me to do that. And he's not going to command me to do something unless he gives me a way to do that. The one exception to this I can think of that Nephi probably wouldn't have known because he didn't have the Bible yet was Adam. Uh, In the story of Adam and Eve, Adam was told not to eat of the fruit of good and evil but also told to populate and replenish the earth. And so those were opposing commandments where he wasn't given a way to accomplish both of them. Uh, But that's a bit of an exception to the rule from what I can tell. This is just really playing into that theme of obedience, where if you jump, God is going to be there to catch you. So Nephi and his brothers go back to Jerusalem and they go to get these plates. The way they decide is casting lots, which for some reason I'd always thought was like, You pick sticks and whoever has the shortest one loses, but that's not what it is. This is actually something that happens 47 times in the Bible, um, which would both explain it being a Jewish tradition, but also something that Joseph Smith would have known about. Uh, Both of those check out for me. The way this works is you put a bunch of white stones into a cup and one black stone, and then you shake them up, and whoever gets the black stone is marked in some way. This is generally used to determine like the will of the Lord. Laban ends up being the one who gets the black stone, and so he's marked, and he has to go get the plates from Laban. But it doesn't go well. He goes in there, tells Laban he needs the plates. Laban calls him a robber and kicks him out. So Laban runs back to his brothers. Everyone's sad, and Nephi is basically like, no, you just didn't have faith. We're going to do this. I, I said I'd go and do. I've got to go and do. So the brothers all go back in at the words of Nephi. They decide if he won't give it to us, we'll buy it from him. They gather all their riches from their house and um, take it to Laban to try to trade. But Laban's just like, well, this is a win-win for me. I'm going to take your stuff and kill you. Uh, Nephi and his brothers are able to get out just in time, but now Laban's got their stuff. And so they hide out in a cave and try to figure out what to do. 
Laman and Lemuel, they, they get angry and they beat Nephi and Sam with a rod because they're saying, we need to stay and do this. And Laman and Lemuel are like, we got to get the heck out of Dodge. Um, but while they're beating Nephi and Sam, an angel appears and it stops them. Uh, I, 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 part of me is curious, like what this angel looked like. They don't really describe this one. I know in the Bible, especially in Revelations, you got some real weird looking angels. Um, whereas you also have other ones that supposedly look like humans, but if it was one of the weird ones, I totally get why this would stop them. Uh, cause that would be terrifying. They're like circling wheels with eyes all over them or lots of eyes in general, actually. But anyway, so this angel stops them. He tells them, go one more time to Laban and he'll be delivered to you. Laban and Lemuel are like, heck no. He just tried to kill us twice. We are not doing that. Um, and then Nephi, he responds with another message that kind of pushes into the power of God or the, the theme of God being this powerful delivering force where he says that Laban might be able to slay 50 or command 50 and he's mighty, but the Lord is mightier than anything. He can overcome Laban and his 50 or even tens of thousands of people because he's got the power of deliverance. And he tells them to act act in faith like Moses did, who famously was delivering his people. And he tells them that the Lord will deliver them like he did for their fathers. And the Lord is going to destroy Laban like he destroyed the Egyptians. And... Once again, it's just really interesting to me because my whole life in the church, I've thought of God as this really merciful, generous figure and that his portrayal in the Book of Mormon isn't super compatible with the portrayal of God in the Old Testament, where he is kind of destroying people if they turn against him. But this seems to be a bit more compatible with that so far from what I've seen. And I'm not doubting that there's going to be a more loving, generous God later on. But if this really was written by many different people across hundreds of years, it makes sense why different people at different times would have different views of God. So anyway, Nephi takes a leap of faith and he goes to Laban. He doesn't know how things are going to work out, but he goes in trusting nonetheless. Again, that theme of obedience. While he's there, he finds Laban totally drunk, totally passed out. Um, and while he finds Laban drunk and passed out, he notices his sword, which is super fine and made of steel and that's when the spirit tells Nephi to do something really interesting. He tells Nephi to kill Laban. Nephi pushes back saying, I've never done anything like that before. I've never spilled the blood of man. That's not something I'm willing to do. But the spirit tells him again to do it. And the, the reasons here are interesting. Um, he says it's because the Lord delivered Laban to him. Like, this is a gift from God. You better do it. Um, and he also says quote, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. Again, you have this powerful God of deliverance. Laban, or the spirit also says Laban tried to kill you and he's not going to listen to the Lord anyway. So take him out. And then he gives this really interesting reason. It's better for one man to perish than a nation to perish and dwindle in unbelief. And on the surface, this looks like a, uh, like support from God for utilitarianism which is generally the belief that when you're making a moral decision, you want to go with something that has the most good and the least amount of pain caused. So here it's a simple math equation. There's one man versus an entire nation. So obviously kill the one man. This provides some really interesting, it's an interesting lens to view the rest of the Book of Mormon and scripture through and morality in general. For example, let's say, 
Uh, I'm trying to remember what examples we used in our philosophy class for utilitarianism. Let's say there's people all around the world watching a soccer game and the thing broadcasting it, this big heavy metal thing, it falls on someone and it's crushing their leg and they're not going to die. But if you move it, it's going to cut the game for thousands or millions of people across the world. And so that small amount of discomfort, they call it dolors for pain, is going to trump the amount of pain from one single guy. Even if for that one single guy, it's more intense than any, any of them will feel. It, it really turns into that math equation of how much pain for one person equals the pain of a bunch of different people added up. So it, it's a really interesting philosophical lens for this. But it's also interesting through the lens of universalism, which, again, Joseph Smith was very concerned about finding an answer for, as well as all of the people at the time of Joseph Smith. Because it's not just saying, kill this man because everyone else needs it, but it's also definitely implying, like, if people perish without believing, something bad is going to happen to them, which isn't what universalists would teach. They would teach, like, if you die, it, it doesn't matter because you're saved. Everybody's saved. So this message resonates with Nephi. He cuts off Laban's head, which, I mean, that's a little excessive. And then he puts on what must have been, like, horribly blood-soaked clothes so that he would look like Laban. Um, and in these bloody clothes, he goes to the treasury to meet a man named Zoram. And Zoram's the treasurer. He had the brass plates. Nephi tells him, take those and follow me, and he leads him out of town. So now they've got the brass plates, he leads them to his brothers. The brothers think that it's Laban originally and that Nephi had, uh, that he'd killed Nephi and he's coming for them now. They start to run, Nephi reassures them. Then Zoram realizes, I've been duped, he tries to run. Nephi's buff, so he tackles him. And then there's this thing that stuck out to me, I'm not sure how to take it. He basically threatens to kill Zoram if he leaves, but he'll spare his life if he stayed. But he also just really pushed back on killing anyone, like, 20 seconds ago. So either, I, I don't know, it's a weird inconsistency where suddenly he's willing to kill if it means, like, protecting himself, but before he, he wasn't willing to do that. And not just, like, physically protecting himself, but, like, protecting their information as well. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to take it. Anyway, um, Zoram swears loyalty to them, and he joins the party. This brings us to chapter 5, 6, and 7, and this is all pretty simple stuff. The family comes back to Sariah and Levi, who had been fighting for a little bit. But when Nephi and the other brothers get back home, they all rejoice and have a good time. Because what, what they say, what Lehi says, I think, is that he knew that the Lord would deliver his sons. Again, this theme of deliverance, it's coming up over and over and over again. And they mention specifically how God gave them, uh, how God gave them power and deliverance. It's something I've never noticed. Like I said, uh, there's so much in here of this powerful delivering God. Anyway, everyone's rejoicing, and then they take a look at the brass plates. So like I said, the, this is the Torah, the first five books of Moses, um, and that's the first five books in the Old Testament. So they get the story of the creation of the world, Adam and Eve, but what really sticks out to them is Jewish lineage. Now, Nephi says that he doesn't list the entire lineage because he said Lehi already did that. Which, I mean, it's convenient for Nephi not needing to write out things. But we'll see later on, he doesn't have an issue quoting things. It's also, it would be convenient for someone who was needing to remember an entire list of names in their head. So I could see this working either way. I don't know. 
like it, it just seems convenient that he didn't need to write all of those down when they'd be able to compare it to the plates of Lehi, but it could just be a coincidence. Anyway, uh, Nephi mentions twice that the most important ancestor in their Jewish lineage is Joseph of Egypt. And this is two reasons. Um, one of them is those tribes of Israel that I mentioned earlier. They were prophesied to be scattered across every edge of the world before they come back and reunite. And Nephi is going to be going to the promised land soon. And so he's going to be taking the seed of Joseph and scattering and spreading over in the Americas. Um, but there's also a lot of similarities between Nephi and Joseph of Egypt. So I'm sure that reading this account in Genesis, uh, Nephi would have seen a lot of himself in the story of Joseph. He was favored by his father. He was hated by his brothers. We'll get into it in a second, but tied up and left for dead for wild beasts in the wilderness. Ended up being delivered by his Lord, having his brothers bow down to him, which again, we're going to get into soon. Um, there's just a lot similar between them. And you could say that's inspiration from Joseph Smith, like looking at the Bible, but you could also say it's just God acting in similar ways and giving similar experiences to other people. Um, so, so this seed of Joseph is really meaningful for Nephi to the point that he mentions it several times. But after they look at their lineage, they decide, yeah, we really got to get moving. We got to get out of here. Jerusalem's being destroyed. But first, we are going to need to spread our seeds, so us brothers need to go get some wives. They go back to Jerusalem, they take daughters, or they take uh, wives from the daughters of a man named Ishmael, and they also bring Ishmael himself. They all return to the party and set off into the wilderness. Uh, but it's, it's not long after traveling where Laman and Lemuel start murmuring again and complaining. So Nephi just goes off on them. And the things that he says here, they, they struck a chord with me. Because they're like the exact same things that members of not just the Latter-day Saint faith, uh, but any faith seem to say to people who leave the church. I'm just going to read a little bit of this. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm grieved for the hardness of your hearts. Um, you're my elder brethren. How is it that you're so hard in your hearts and blind in your mind that you have need that I, your younger brother, should speak unto you and set an example for you? How is it that you've not hearkened to the word of the Lord? How is it that you've forgotten that you've seen an angel? How is it that you've forgotten that uh, that the Lord has done great things for us in delivering us out of the hands of Laban? Again, that theme of deliverance. And also that we should obtain the record. Yea, how is it that you've forgotten that the Lord is able to do all of these things according to his own will of the children of men? If it so be that they exercise faith in him, wherefore let us be faithful unto him. And if we are so faithful unto, uh, unto him, we shall obtain the land of promises. Yea, and we'll... And we'll know at some future period that the words of the Lord shall be fulfilled concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. For all things which the Lord hath spoken concerning the destruction of Jerusalem must be fulfilled. For behold, the spirit of the Lord ceases to, ceaseth to strive within them soon. For behold, they've rejected the prophets and Jeremiah that they cast into prison. And they sought to take away the life of my father insomuch that they've driven him out of the land. Now behold, I say unto you that if you will return unto Jerusalem, ye shall also perish with them. And now, if ye have a choice, go up to the land and remember the words which I speak unto you. That if ye will also go up and perish, or that if ye go, ye will also perish. For thus saith the Lord, or for thus... The spirit of the Lord constraineth me that I should speak. So he says this to him, essentially saying, like, 
How have you forgotten your testimony? Like you've seen things, you've done things, you've, you've had faith. So where did it go? Just have faith again. Um, and that's something that anyone who starts disbelieving, I think can tell you they've heard is like, you've had a testimony. What happened? Uh, and I think it's, it, it's an offensive question to hear. It, it implies like, I, I don't know like you've forgotten or that you're not trying. And I think a lot of the connotation that comes with it is you're just leaving because you're sinning or you're leaving because you just want to. And and that's not the case for a lot of people here though. It sounds like maybe, maybe it was the case for Layman and Lemuel. Anyway, shocker. After saying all this to Layman and Lemuel, these people who just tried to kill him by beating him with a rod, uh, they, they try to kill him again. They tie him up. They leave him in the wilderness um, to be eaten by wild beasts, kind of like what Joseph of Egypt's brothers did to him. Here, once again, Nephi prays for deliverance, and he's given physical strength to break the bonds that he's tied up in. Once again, we got this power of, or this God of power, this God of deliverance, giving physical strength, not just spiritual strength, to allow him to just snap the ropes that he's tied up in. And then uh, Laman and Lemuel got angry with him again for breaking out. But this time their wives talk him down and Ishmael talk them down. And what they do next, like they have a total 180 from wanting to kill Nephi. They suddenly bow down to him. Um, again, similar to Joseph of Egypt, where he has this vision of uh, these stalks of corn that represent his brothers bowing down to him. And then later on, they bow down to him. And now here with Nephi, his brothers bow down to him. Um, but Nephi tells them, just turn to the Lord and um, improve your lives. Let's all keep going on together. And so they do. And that concludes chapter seven. Um, I, I don't know. I'm seeing really interesting parallels, not just in the life of Joseph Smith, but also in the lives of Joseph, Joseph of Egypt. We've got that look into God's morality in the Book of Mormon of utilitarianism versus uh, anti-universalism. And we've got um, talking about the tribes of Israel, kind of making a forecast for the future of the Book of Mormon um, and setting up an interesting prophecy for Joseph Smith that we'll see later on, I think, in 2 Nephi. But this brings us to the final chapter we're going to talk about today, chapter 8, which is the vision of the tree of life. Very famous and uh, widely talked about in Latter-day Saint circles. But what isn't widely known is that Joseph Smith Sr., Joseph Smith's dad, had a dream years before the Book of Mormon was translated that was basically beat for beat the vision of the tree of life. And this isn't necessarily to say Joseph Smith just took this and wrote it down. But I do think it's interesting to look at uh, the differences between Lehi's vision and Joseph Smith Sr.'s vision. And I, I think the differences that we see will probably give us some insight into either what Joseph Smith was trying to get across or the differences in what the Lord was trying to get across. So I'm going to start by going through Lehi's vision, kind of beat for beat what happened, and then I'll talk about how it differs from the vision of Joseph Smith. So Lehi finds himself in this dark and dreary wilderness. He doesn't know where to go. When suddenly he sees a man in a white robe who comes to him and says, follow me. Now, at first when I saw this, I thought, I mean, that's the Lord. That's supposed to be Christ. But he gets lost following this man in white. And so he prays to the Lord for mercy. So I don't know who the man in white was supposed to be. I, I guess not the Lord. But after praying, he sees this large field, uh, this large field with a tree in it. 
and this tree has white fruit on it. Incredibly white, incredibly delicious. When you eat it, it fills you with joy. And Lehi wants his family to have it. And most of them do, but Laman and Lemuel aren't having any of it. They kind of go their own way. Now, in the same area, he sees a river that leads near the Tree of Life and also near that river, an iron rod um, that leads to the Tree of Life. So, like this big metal stick people can cling to to uh, get to the Tree of Life. What led them there is this straight and narrow path that they've got to stay on. And in this vision, there were a lot of people clamoring to get there. It's not just Lehi's family, but multitudes and multitudes of people. And while they're doing this, there's this mist of darkness that rises up. And it causes people to lose their way where they're totally lost. They're not making it to the tree of life. Now, some people do. And, and when they do, some of them become ashamed and they turn away and they leave it. And, and where do they go? There's a great and spacious building nearby hovering in the air. And inside this building, there's people who are dressed super nice and pointing fingers and mocking them. Now, Nephi mentions again at this point that he's leaving out some details that his father had because he's just writing an abridged version. Um, But that people are generally trying to get to the great and spacious building, but they're drowning in a nearby fountain and they're not making it. So they're trying to leave this tree of life and get to the great and spacious building, but drown along the way. And then he kind of wakes up and tells Laman and Lemuel, hey, you guys aren't doing this and I'm worried about you. Um, So how does this differ from Joseph Smith Sr.? Most of this, even like the wording, is it's beat for beat. Um, You can look it up. I think it's on the church's website even. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. But it's really interesting. I know it is in uh, Joseph Smith's history as written by his mother. Uh, Or at least I think that's the book. But yeah, so here are some of the differences that you're going to see in Joseph Smith Sr.'s version. There's no man in white robes, um, and in Joseph Smith's version, there's no no one left behind. It's just his family. Everyone comes and eats of the fruit. The iron rod, instead of being iron, it was rope, something that's more flexible. There was no fountain for people to drown in. There was no one there beside his family. There was no mist of darkness to obscure people. Nobody was lost. Nobody was ashamed after eating the fruit. Nobody drowned. So all of these come together and they paint a difference in philosophy where Joseph Smith Sr.'s was very much universalist. Everybody's coming here. The rope is flexible. You're going to get here and everybody makes it. We're eating the fruit of the tree of life together. Uh, No one's getting drowned. No one's getting lost. We're all here. Whereas if you look at Lehi's version, it's very anti-universalist, where there's people who are getting lost. Laman and Lemuel, part of their family, they're getting lost. There's people trying to get to this tree of life, but they're getting distracted by the great and spacious building and they're getting lost. People are drowning in the river. Um, People are being misled by this man in white at the beginning who uh, is saying to follow him. We're going to get Nephi's interpretation of this in a few chapters, so I'm going to feel kind of silly if that is supposed to be the Lord. Uh, But we'll find out then. But yeah, regardless, I think it's really interesting that the two key differences here are that Lehi's vision, uh, as written in the Book of Mormon, are definitely anti-universalist, whereas Joseph Smith's are very universalist. And and that's just a really interesting difference to me, uh, where Joseph Smith Sr., he's trying to convince his family universalism is right, Joseph Smith Jr., he's trying to convince his family that that's not it. You still got to do something. You still need the word of God. And we can see that reflected in these first nine chapters here. Um, 
And I say nine because, I mean, not much happens in the chapter after this. Nephi talks a bit about there being two sets of plates once again, and that's basically it. That's the first nine chapters of the Book of Mormon. I've really enjoyed looking into this. Um, I'm seeing some recurring themes. The theme of obedience, the theme of faith, the theme of this powerful delivering God who can physically save his people from bad places. Um, God's stance, kind of utilitarianism, but also, like I said, a bit anti-universalist. Um, let's see, allusions to the house of Israel and Joseph of Egypt, similarities between Lehi's vision and Joseph Smith's vision, similarities between, uh, Joseph of Egypt and Nephi. And, um, yeah, yeah, I think that's about it. Um, I've really enjoyed this. I, part of me wishes I made it further, but I'm really happy with what I did. Next up, we've got Nephi's vision, and this goes on for as about, as, about as long as I just read. I don't remember everything he sees. I know there's going to be an interpretation of the dream uh, or the vision of Lehi that we just read. But yeah, I'm really excited to see where this goes. I'm excited to keep exploring these themes, and I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you can see I'm really trying to dig into this and be as authentic as I can while also looking at the history of it and what it could mean from any interpretation. And I'm still trying to find things to apply to my life. Um, I, I don't know how I feel about universalism. I don't know how I feel about utilitarianism. Uh, it, it's not something I've really thought about in a long time, but I'm excited to do it. And I'm excited to keep reading. So yeah, thank you so much for listening along and I'll talk to you next week.